Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Spirituality and Magic Podcast. I'm your host once again, Hunter Salazar, and today we're going to be reading from Celtic Tales. Um, these are fairy tales and stories of enchantment from Ireland, Scotland, Brittany, and Wales. This is illustrated by Kate Forrester, and I will be including the uh, the front of the book for the thumbnail so you'll be able to identify it. Um, at any rate, so we're going to see how many we can read from this. And the reason why I have this book is because, you know, from my DNA evidence, it turns out I'm mainly Celtic. I'm about 65% uh, Welsh, 12% Irish and Scottish, and then the next biggest uh, percentile is uh, 15% Native American. And then a little bit of smattering of Norwegian, uh, 5% black, and uh, just uh, and 1% Baltic, like a little bit German. So I, I, but mainly I, I'm Celtic, uh, but I, I, I'm obviously a very, um, very big mix as far as my DNA is concerned. But after my DNA test and after actually being interested in Celtic, um, not just mythology, but Celtic culture, uh, even before I knew about my DNA, uh, I decided to like basically just really go into um, the culture of the Celts and try to get as much information as possible. I've been working with Lou of the Tua de Danan. He is, uh, he's basically an Irish god, the sun, art, craft. Um, I've reached out to him, and we've been uh, working together for a, little, uh, for a little while. At any rate, uh, I'm going to read at least one, but maybe two of these stories. This is going to be uh, Celtic Tales uh, Part 1. And uh, let's go ahead and dive in. Now, the first story we have here, I, I, I may be providing content as well, by the way. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, I may be adding um, commentary, rather. So... Right now, we're starting on page 11, which is the first story, and it is called The Clumsy Beauty and Her Aunts. Um, it is from Ireland. There was once a poor widow with a daughter named Ursula, who was as beautiful as a spring day, but as clumsy as could be. The poor mother was the most industrious person in the town and was particularly good hand at, spinning, uh, at the spinning wheel. It was her greatest wish that her daughter should be as handy as herself so that she would find a good husband. But any work Urs uh, Ursula touched seemed to tangle or break in her fingers at once. One morning, things were very bad for Ursula. Had tried her hand at spinning once again, and once again had tangled the thread. Her mother was giving her a good scolding. When who should be riding by their small farm but the king's own son? Oh dear, oh dear, good woman, he said. You must have a very bad child to make to make you scold so terribly. Sure, it can't be this handsome girl who's vexed you. Now, the widow knew the prince was in need of a wife, and she quickly devised a plan. Oh, please, your majesty, not at all, she said. I was only checking her for working herself too much. Would your majesty believe it? She spends three pounds of flax in a day weaves it into linen the next, and makes it, it all into shirts the next day. Gracious, said the prince. Then she's the very lady that will catch my mother's eye, for she herself is the greatest spinner in the kingdom. Will you fetch your daughter's bonnet and cloak, please, madame, and set her behind me on my horse? 
Why, my mother will be, deli- be so delighted with her that perhaps she'll allow us to marry within the week. That is, of course, if the young lady herself is agreeable. Well, the woman uh, bundled Ursula into her bonnet and cloak and sent her off with the prince before the girl could even protest. But as they rode back to the castle together, the prince was so solicitous and kind that she almost forgot her fear of being found out. When they arrived at the castle, the queen came out to meet her son and was almost struck dumb when she saw a young country girl sitting behind him. But when they dismounted and she saw the girl's handsome face and heard about her incredible feats of spinning, her feelings changed quite quickly. Ursula trembled under the queen's gaze, but the prince whispered in her ear that if she didn't object to becoming his wife, she could strive to please his mother. So she smiled bravely and made a wobbly curtsy. That evening, they all dined together, and the prince and Ursula were getting fonder and fonder of one another. But the thought of spinning still sent a chill to her heart. And sure enough, after they had feasted, the queen led Ursula to a beautiful bedroom, pointed to a heap of fine flax in the corner and said, You may begin as soon as you like tomorrow morning, and I'll expect to see these three pounds in nice thread the morning after. Then she bid Ursula good night. The poor girl slept little that night, and when she was left alone the next morning, she began her spinning with a heavy heart. Though she had a nice mahogany wheel and the finest flax she'd ever seen, the thread seemed to break every time she touched it. One moment, it was as fine as a cobweb, and the next, as coarse as wool. At last, she pushed her chair back, let her hands fall into her lap, and burst out crying. Just then, a small old woman with surprisingly big feet appeared before her, as if out of nowhere, and said, What ails you? You handsome girl. Oh, cried Ursula, haven't I all the flax to spin before tomorrow morning? And I'll never be able to have even five yards of fine thread of it put together. And would you think it bad to ask poor uh, Koliak Kushmore to your wedding with the young prince? If you promise to invite me, all three pounds of your flax will be made into the finest of thread while you're taking your sleep tonight. Ursula was overjoyed. Indeed, you must be there and welcome. And I'll honor you all the days of my life. Very well, said Koliak Kushmore. Stay in your room till tea time, and then tell the queen she may come in for her thread as early as she likes tomorrow morning. Ursula did as she said, and the old woman was as good as her promise. The next morning, Ursula woke to find thread finer and evener than the gut of fly fishers. What a brave girl, cried the queen. I'll get my own mahogany loom brought to you, but you needn't do anything more today. Work and rest, work and rest, that's my motto. Tomorrow you'll weave all this thread, and who knows what may happen, she added with a smile. So Ursula spent another day with the prince, and she was so happy in his company that she almost forgot the task ahead of her. But the next morning, When she sat down at the queen's loom, she was even more frightened than before. Her trembling fingers couldn't even put the warp in the gears, nor use the shuttle. She was sitting there in the greatest of grief when a little old woman 
with mightily wide hips suddenly appear before her. She said her name was Koliak Komenmor, and she offered the same bargain as Koliak Kushmor. Eagerly, Ursula accepted, and great was the queen's pleasure the next morning when Ursula showed her linen as fine and white as the finest paper. What a darling girl, said the queen. Take your ease with the ladies and gentlemen today, and if you, if you have all this made into nice shirts tomorrow, you may present one of them to my son and be married to him out of my hand. Oh, how poor Ursula trembled the next day as she sat with scissors, needle, and thread in hand. She was so near the prince now, and yet maybe would be soon far from him. But she waited patiently till a minute after noon. An old woman with a big red nose appeared before her. The woman introduced herself as Koliak Shran Morua, and she made the same offer as the two before her. Ursula accepted with relief, and sure enough, when the queen paid her an early visit the next morning, there were a dozen fine shirts lying on the table. Two, uh, the wedding took place a few days later, and it was exceedingly grand. Ursula's mother was there along with the rest, and at the wedding dinner, the queen could talk of nothing but the lovely shirts and how happy she and the bride would be after the honeymoon when they would be spinning and weaving and sewing shirts without end. The bridegroom didn't much like the conversation, and the bride liked it less. But before either could interject, a footman came up to the head of the table and said to the bride, Your lady's aunt, Koliak Kushmore, bade me ask if she might come in. The bride blushed and washed, uh, wished she uh, were seven miles under the floor, uh, but she nodded. And the prince said, tell Mrs. Cushmore that any relation of my bride's will always be heartily welcome wherever she and I are. In came the woman with the big foot, and she gave a seat near the queen. She, she got a seat near the queen. But the queen, who didn't like the interruption, soon asked rather spitefully, Dear madame, what's the reason your foot is so big? Faith, your majesty, said Koliak Kushmore. I was standing almost all my life at the spinning wheel, and that's the reason. I declare to you, my darling, said the prince, horrified. I'll never allow you to spend one more hour at the same spinning wheel. A little while later, the footman approached again and said, Your ladyship, Aunt Koliak Krommenmore wishes to come in if you have no objection. The prince and Ursula said she was welcome, and she took her seat and drank healths aplenty to the company. But after a minute, the queen said, May I ask, madame, why you're so wide, halfway between the head and the feet? That, your majesty, is owing to sitting all my life at the loom, said Koliak Krommenmore. Uh, By my scepter, said the prince, my wife shall never sit there an hour. Finally, the footman approached again and said, Your ladyship, Aunt Koliak Shronmorua, is asking leave to come into the banquet. Again, the bride and br uh, bridegroom said she was welcome, and in came, came the old woman and settled herself at the table. Madame, said the queen, will you tell us, if you please, why your nose is so big and red? Troth, your majesty, my head was bent down over the stitching all my life, 
and all the blood of my body ran into my nose, said Koliak Shran Mor Rua. My darling, said the prince in all seriousness to Ursula, if I ever see a needle in your hand, I'll run a hundred miles from you. And in this way, the clumsy Ur Urs uh, Ursula was relieved of spinning work for the rest of her life, and she and the prince were happily married at last. So it's hard to it's hard to really know what uh, I'm not really sure if there's a moral to the story. <laughs> um, it feels like um, luck and happenstance were on the side of Ursula, and that even though she was nervous, everything worked out in the end, despite her being nervous. Perhaps this has to do with an idea of the relationship between a wife and husband um, about a husband's expectations. And even if those expectations aren't met, everything comes to for everything comes together in the end, regardless. I hope that's the uh, I hope that's the lesson to take out of that. It, it otherwise it, it seems a little flippant, but uh, but yeah. So that was an interesting story. I actually I actually enjoyed it. So that's from Ireland. We actually do have another story from Ireland that I'm going to read tonight. Um, but we're going to go ahead and uh, hear a word from our sponsor. Hello, everyone. So we are back. So this story is also from Ireland, and it is called Master and Man. This is on page 17 of the book Celtic Tales, Fairy Tales and Stories of Enchantment from Ireland, Scotland, Brittany, and Wales. So Master and Man from Ireland, page 17. Billy MacDaniel was once as good-natured a young man as ever shook uh, his broke at a festival, emptied a quarter, or handled a... Shillelagh. He feared for nothing but the want of drink, cared for nothing but who should pay for it, and thought of nothing but how to make fun over it. Drunk or sober, a word and a blow was ever the way with Billy Mac Daniel. In a mighty and a mighty easy way it is of either getting into or of ending a dispute. More's the pity that through his fearing and caring and thinking for nothing but drink, this same Billy MacDaniel fell into bad company, for surely the fairies are the worst of all company anyone, anyone could come across. It so happened that Billy was going home one clear frosty night, not long after Christmas. The moon was round and bright, but although it was as fine a night as heart could wish for, he felt pinched with cold. By my word, chattered Billy, a drop of good liquor would be no bad thing to keep a man's soul from freezing in him, and I wish I had a full measure of the best. Never wish it twice, Billy, said a voice right beside him. He looked down and saw a little man in a three-cornered hat, bound all about with gold lace and with great silver buckles on his shoes, which... were so big that it was a wonder he could wear them. He held out a glass, as big as himself, filled with as good liquors ever it I looked or uh, looked on or tip lip tasted. Success, my little fellow, said Billy MacDaniel. Nothing daunted. Thou well he knew, though well he knew that the little man belonged to the good people. Here's to your health, and thank you kindly. And he took the glass and drained it to the very bottom without ever taking a second breath to it. Success, said the little man, and you're heartily welcome, Billy, but don't think to cheat me as you have done others. Out with your purse and pay me like a gentleman. 
Is it I pay you, said Billy? Could I not just take you up and put you in my pocket as easily as a blackberry? Billy MacDaniel, said the little man, getting very angry. You shall be my servant for seven years and a day, and that is the way I will be paid. So make ready to follow me. When Billy heard this, he began to be very sorry for having used such bold words toward the little man. Yet without knowing why, he felt himself obliged to follow the little man about the country that whole night, up and down, over hedge and ditch, and through bog and brake without any rest. When morning began to dawn, the little man turned round to him and said, You may now go home, Billy, but on your peril. Don't fail to meet me in the fortnight to in the fort field tonight, or it may be the worst for you in the long run. If I find you are a good servant, you will find me an indulgent master. Home went Billy MacDaniel, and though he was tired and weary enough and stayed in bed all that day, he couldn't get a wink of sleep for thinking of the little man. He was afraid not to do his bidding, so up he got in the evening and away he went to the fort field. It was not long before the little man arrived and said, Billy, I want to go on a long journey tonight, so saddle one of my horses, and you may saddle another for yourself. As you are to go along with me, and may be tired after your walk last night. Billy thought this very considerate of his master, and thanking him accordingly, and thanked him accordingly. But, said he, if I may be so bold, sir, I would ask which is the way to your stable. For never a thing do I see but the old fort here and the old thorn tree in the corner of the field and the stream running at the bottom of the hill and the big and the bit of bog beside it with the rushes growing in it. Ask no questions, Billy, said the little man, but go over to that bit of bog and bring me two of the strongest rushes you can find. Billy did accordingly, wondering what the little man would be at. He picked two of the stoutest rushes he could find, and brought them back to his master. Get up, Billy, said the little man, taking one of the rushes from him and striding across it. Where shall I get up? Please, your honor, said Billy. Why, up on horseback, like me, be, to be sure, said the little man. Is it after making a fool of me you'd be, said Billy, biding me, uh, bidding me get on horseback upon that bit of, of rush? Maybe... Uh, maybe you want to persuade me that the rush I pulled a minute ago out of the bog over there is in fact a horse? Up, up, and no words, said the little man, looking very angry. The best horse you ever rode was but a fool next to these. So Billy, thinking all this was a joke, but fearing to vex his master, straddled across the rush. Bottom, 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 cried the little man suddenly. Immediately the rushes swelled up into fine horses, and away they went at full speed. But Billy, who had put the rush between his legs without much minding how he did it, found himself sitting on horseback the wrong way, which was rather awkward, and his fa uh, with his face to the horse's tail. So quickly had his steed started off with him that he had no power to turn around, and there was nothing for it but to hold out onto the tail. At last they came to their journey's end, and stopped at the gate of a fine house. Now, Billy, said the little man, do as you see me do, and follow me close. But as you did not know your horse's head from its tail, mind that your own head does not spin around until you can't tell whether you are standing on it or on your heels. 
For remember, that old liquor, though it can make a cat speak, can make a man dumb. The little man then said some queer kinds of words, out of which Billy could make no meaning. But he managed to say the words anyway, and as soon as he did, he felt himself flying alongside the little man, though he didn't know how, in through the keyhole of the door, and through one keyhole after another until they reached the wine cellar, which was well stored with all kinds of wine. The little man fell to drinking as hard as he could, and Billy in no way disliking the example did the same. The best of masters are you surely, said Billy to him, and I will be well pleased to be in your service if you continue to give me plenty to drink. I have made no bargain with you, said the little man, and will make none, but get up and follow me now. Away they went again, through keyhole after keyhole, then each mounted upon the rush which he had left at the hall door, and they uh, scampered off, kicking the clouds before them like snowballs as soon as the words bottom, bottom, bottom had passed their lips. When they came to the fort field, the little man dismissed Billy, bidding him to be there the next night at the same hour. Thus did they go on, night after night, shaping their course one night here and another night there, sometimes north, sometimes east, sometimes south, and sometimes west, until there was not a gentleman's wine cellar in all Ireland. They had not visited, and they could, and they could tell uh, the flavor of every wine in every cellar as well as, or better than the butler himself. One night, when Billy MacDaniel met the little man as usual in the fort field, and was going to the bog to fetch the horses for their journey, his master said to him, Billy, I shall want another horse tonight, for maybe we will bring back more company than we take. So Billy, who now knew better than to question any order given to him by his master, brought a third rush, wondering who it might be that would travel back in their company, and whether he was about to have a fellow servant. If it is another servant, thought Billy, he shall go and fetch the horses from the bog every night, for I don't see why I am not every inch of me as good a gentleman as my master. Well away they went, with Billy leading the third horse, and never stopped until they came to a snug farmer's house in County Limerick. Within the house, there were great carousing, there was great carousing, and the little man stopped outside for some time to listen. Then turning round, all of a sudden, he said, Billy! I will be a thousand years old tomorrow. God bless us, sir, said Billy in surprise. Will you? Don't say those words again, Billy, said the, said the little old man, or you will be my ruin forever. Now, as I will be a thousand years in the world tomorrow, I think it is full time for me to get married. I think so, too, without any kind of doubt at all, said Billy. If ever you meant, if ever you mean to marry. And to that purpose, said the little man, have I come all the way to this house? For in this house, this very night, is young Darby Riley going to be married to Bridget Rooney. And as Bridget is a tall and comely girl and has come of decent people, I think of marrying her myself and taking her off with me. And what will Darby Riley say to that, said Billy. Silence, said the little man, putting, out, putting on a mighty, uh, a mighty severe look. I did not bring you here with me to ask questions. Without holding further argument, he began saying the queer words, which had the power of passing him through the keyholes 
as free as air, in which Billy thought himself mighty clever to be able to say after him. Into the house they both went, and up the rafters, for the better viewing of the company, and to keep out of sight. The little man perched himself up as nimbly as a sparrow on one of the big beams, which went across the house over the heads of the guests, and Billy did the same upon another facing him. But as he was not much accustomed to roosting in such a place, his legs hung down as untidy as may be, while the little man sat content, con, uh, contentedly upon his haunches. There they sat, both master and man, looking down upon the fun that was going forward. Under them were the priest and the piper, the father of Darby Riley and Darby's two brothers, the father and the mother of Bridget Rooney and her four sisters, with brand new ribbons in their caps and her three brothers, all looking as clean, as clever as any three boys in Munster, and enough uncles and aunts and cousins besides to make a full house of it. And on the table, there was plenty to eat and drink for every one of the guests, and if they had been double the number, as if they had been double the number. Now, just as Mrs. Rooney was helping the priest to first cut of the pig's head, Billy saw his master take a little leather pouch from his pocket and, reaching into it, pull out a pinch of some powder that he sprinkled down upon the, the table right in front of the bride. At that, the bride gave a sneeze. It made everyone at the table start, but not a soul said, God bless us. All the guests thought the priest would have done so, as was his duty, and no one wished to take the word, uh, the word out of his mouth which, unfortunately, was preoccupied with pig's head and greens. But after a moment's pause, the fun and merriment of the bridal feast went on without the pious benediction. Both Billy and his master noticed this happen from their stations high up in the rafters. Ha! exclaimed the little man, and his eye twinkled with a strange light. Ha! said he, leering down at the bride. I have half of her now. Surely. Let her sneeze but twice more, and she is mine. Again he sprinkled a bit of the mysterious powder down upon the table, and again the fair Bridget sneezed, but she did so gently, blushing with embarrassment, that few except the little man and Billy seemed to take any notice, and no one thought of saying, God bless us. Billy, at all this, all this time, was regarding the poor girl with a most rueful, rueful expression, for he could not help thinking what a terrible thing it was for a nice young girl of 19, with large blue eyes, transparent skin, and dimpled cheeks, suffused with health and joy to be obliged to marry an ugly little bit of a man who was a thousand years old, barring a day. At this critical moment, the bride gave a third sneeze, and Billy roared out with all his might, God bless us. Whether this exclamation resulted from his thoughts about the marriage or from mere force of habit, he never could tell exactly, but no sooner was it uttered than the little man, his face glowing with rage and disappointment, sprung up from the beam on which he had perched himself and shrieked out in a shrill voice like a croaked bagpipe, cracked bagpipe, I discharge you for my service, Billy Mac Daniel. Take that for your wages. And he gave poor Billy a most furious kick in the back, which sent him unfor his unfortunate servant sprawling upon his face right in the middle of the supper table. If Billy was astonished, how much more so was every one of the company into which 
he was thrown with little ceremony. But when he had told his story, the priest laid down his knife and fork and married the young couple with all speed. And Billy MacDaniel lanced, uh, da- danced and drank and feasted to his heart's content at their wedding. That's a very interesting story. I think it has, uh, there's, a, of course, a lot of Christian influence with the idea that any fae or any spirits that aren't directly Christian must be um, evil, thus must be able to be fought with uh, simple words like, God bless us. Uh, it feels like there's there's a, there's a, a note of the servant-master relationship um, and complacency, but also there's a note of um, somebody who thinks that they've worked out everything just right of uh, being foiled uh, by the simplest of things for their pride. Um, but I, I actually really enjoyed these two stories. So these two stories are going to be the part one of these Celtic tales, and I'm going to be reading to you. Um, there's many, many more. We're on page 25, and the next, this next story is also from Ireland, and it's called The Kildare Puka. The K-I-L-D-A-R-E space P-O-O-K-A, uh, which is also from Ireland, apparently. Um, I'm going to read that story next time we do another part of this, but uh, I hope you enjoyed this. I hope that um, – now, it doesn't exactly co- coincide with the description of various beings. that I, that That is my goal for season five. But I will be sprinkling in episodes that don't exactly – um, collaborate with my original purpose of making this season about various beings. Uh, but in these stories, I think that we got a hint of the nature of a leprechaun, at least, um, in Ireland, in these ancient stories. So that is, uh, that is at least partially <laughs> uh, making this episode relevant to this season. At any rate, if you like this story, if you want me to read more, or if you want to share any comments, questions, or concerns... Uh, suggestions about other books, other Celtic books, feel free to contact me at www.facebook.com slash Hunter period Salazar, H-U-N-T-E-R period S-A-L-A-Z-A-R. At any rate, thank you very much for listening, and I hope that you join me again very soon.